Hello, Wukar Nation. Thanks for turning into the WooCast. We are brought to you by Wukar, oddly enough. We've got a really great, uh, exciting platform that we're going to be launching here really soon called the Woo Academy, where you'll be able to go and learn how to level up in all aspects of your life, mind, body, and business. So to get the latest info on that, go to wukar.com, enter your email, and then I'll get you on our list. And you will know exactly what's happening and when it's happening. So go to wukar.com, enter your email. And, you know, I'm really excited about this week's program. We really are working hard to get you the best guests possible uh, to teach you how to level up in mind, body, and business. And this weekend, this week, I have my friend Annie Vo on the podcast, and she is one of New York City's most sought-after personal trainers. She has built a really great business in in Manhattan, which is, as you probably know, is a really expensive city. And she's going to talk about how she got started and how she is able to open one of the most successful personal training gyms in the city on a very, very limited budget with really no experience, no business background at all. She came from the world of academics and music. She's a classically trained musician. She has a degree in philosophy from Columbia University. So she's a very uh, cerebral, thoughtful person, and that really shows in the way she conducts her business and the way she interacts with her clients. And she's going to talk a lot about the, you know, how she got started, how she built her business, and we're going to talk about just kind of training in general. And it's just a really fun conversation. So I'm re- I'm really excited about this. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, let's bring on Annie Vo. This is the Wukar Podcast, dedicated to helping you kick ass in mind, body, and business. And now your hosts, Art O'Connor and Steve Mathis. Hey, I'm here with uh, Annie Vo from New York City. And Annie, thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, talk with us here at Wukar. Uh, we're really, really excited to have you on, on the line. It's really my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Well, great. Well, you know, just uh, for people that are listening, I, I met Annie a couple months ago at, uh, at Jim Jones Advanced Training Seminar. And Jim Jones is kind of an infamous gym uh, located here in Salt Lake City where I live. Um, and, and there's a they have a great certification program that I've gone through. And Annie is now in the process of um Almost, almost, you're almost done. Is that right? You have to do yeah. your, your internship. <laughs> um, so anyway, the long story short, um, I, I, Annie and I have been kind of Facebook friends and Instagram friends, and we just met face to face for the first time uh, about six weeks ago, I guess it was some, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Annie, you've got a pretty unique backstory in terms of how you got involved in the fitness industry and, you know, the fitness lifestyle in general. And so I just wanted you to share a little bit about that with, uh, with our viewers, with our listeners, viewers. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, I have a pretty non-traditional background, whether it be academics, business, um, and especially fitness. I had really never done anything with my body or anything related to physical culture most of my life. I'm a classically trained bass player, and I played professional music for uh, you know, most of my, most of my life, to be quite honest, I, I, uh, postponed attending university and, you know, kind of everything else to play music. So 
I got into fitness uh, on accident. Um, I was a recipient of a full academic scholarship at college. Uh, and as I said, I, I postponed college so I could play music professionally. So here I was um, in my later 20s on a full academic scholarship with really no other business uh, being at that school. Uh, I certainly couldn't afford to be there. So it was a really uh, wonderful kind of serendipitous thing. So the only thing that you get other than full tuition, which is generous, is access to the school gym. So there I was at the school gym or in class or in my dorm room. And that's when I started doing my, you know, lat pull downs and buys and tries and sharing tips with friends at school and starting to build kind of a casual, really not so serious um, gym routine. Then I graduated college mm -hmm. and I was still, uh, uh, my degree is in philosophy. So again, a very kind of cerebral, non-physical culture related discipline. Right. And so I was pursuing potentially going to law school and going that route. But while I was studying for the LSATs, again, you know, graduated college, moved into a hostel, really one of the most precarious times economically to find a job. So I thought, you know, I've been in this gym for a little while. Maybe I can just get a job at one of the big gyms in the neighborhood. So, A, I would have access to a clean shower, and B, <laughs> I'd have some sort of job that, you know, I could start working on today. And um, being exposed to that environment, I, I realized that was, in fact, what I wanted to do. You know, I thought that my uh, philosophy background or music background really wasn't a good fit for personal training per se, especially since I hadn't uh, performed anything or competed in anything or even been on the school, you know, basketball team or what have you. But um, just the experience of communicating, uh, solving kind of complex, I, I, I'm reluctant to say problems, but complex matters, uh, matters uh, with various tools, whether it be deduction, observation, um, you know, those kind of things that I did in school and even in music, the discipline element or understanding the process of improving a skill allowed me to be um, a, a good trainer in my own right. So that's where I've been ever since. Shortly thereafter, I opened my own facility and uh, that's where we are. Here I am. Wow, that's a that, that's a great that's a great backstory, and I definitely want to talk more about the uh, the business side of things. But in, in your early days, when you first started training, did you have a mentor or anybody that that you learned from initially? I know I'm thinking, you know, with your background as a musician. I mean, musicians are you know you're always learning, and you always you know I know even the greats have instructors that they. For so sure. was it so was it less intimidating? Was it more natural for you to seek out a mentor and somebody to teach you when when you first started, or were you kind of self taught? It was a combination, you know. In the world of personal training, we're we're pretty fortunate at this time, at least, where most of the greats in the field are still alive. Mm -hmm. Other than Jack Lalanne, I mean, Arnold Solheim, anybody you could possibly think of related to physical culture is alive, and you could probably email that guy, and he will talk to you. Because it's still a pretty small field, so I, even my my business partner Antonio Cordova, he was my coworker at this big gym, for example, and he'd already done kettlebells and barbells and things like that. So I hadn't even 
thought about those things until he mentioned them. Then you have guys like Dan John or even, you know, Pavel from RKC or um, the Russian kettlebell challenge or any, you know, all these um, coaches that have written books and offered their programming styles and the Olympic, uh, the U S Olympic weightlifting team coaching certification. I mean, they're really kind of bits and pieces that you, kind of seek out as you hear about them. And I think if you're interested in, you know, becoming better at your craft, then you'll automatically want to sign up for these things. I mean, the nice thing as well is that, again, these guys and ladies are accessible. Um, A lot of the education is going on right now. So if you hear about something, chances are you can go online and find a time to go and participate in that very thing. Um, so it was an organic process and I really can't say there was one mentor or even three mentors in particular that changed the course of my training per se, because everybody really had a hand, (laughs) whether it was in writing or in person or an email, um, the list is kind of too long. Right. So it's just kind of a big pot of goulash to make. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then quite frankly, the anecdotal experience um, has been the greatest teacher. You know, I've had, uh, I've been really fortunate to work with a diverse group of clients and working, you know, hundreds of hours with these individuals where you're seeing them upwards of four or five days a week. That's where you really get to put all this theoretical stuff to the test. And then further that each person, even if you have these theory based systems, that each person is their own set of beliefs, experiences, um, understanding of themselves sentient beings that you have to reconcile with. So maybe those things go out the window because the way that this person takes in information or understands himself is so far from what the original writer of this program experienced with his or her work. Right. Well, I so think that, I think t- I'm sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Oh yeah, go for it. No, I think, I mean, I think you're really touching on a really big point that a lot of people miss in that, you have to have kind of the natural curiosity, but also the humbleness to kind of seek out teachers and different theories and try different things because, you know, fitness is such a personal thing. What mm-hmm. work, you know, a training program that works great for me may not work for you. Correct. So you've got to, so you've got to be willing to kind of, you know, use yourself as a guinea pig to a certain extent, um, but also be really critical and analytical and be able to course correct. If something's not working, you need to be able to identify that really quickly and, and change things to, you know, to get something that does work. Correct. Correct. So in that way, I, that's, that's one of the most exhilarating aspects of my work is seeing how much of myself I can remove from the observation process, you know, mm-hmm. cause we come in with our own biases and we're people too, whether you're a coach or what have you, but make sure that you're not putting anything on a situation that doesn't actually exist. Part one, part two, are you really listening to this person? Are you really seeing what's in front of you? And then hopefully part three is that you have the, you know, kind of skill set to, get this person results or to solve this issue or to correct that movement pattern or to motivate that person. Maybe this person um, has to be motivated first before they'll do X, Y, and Z. Just what direction does the flow go in? And can I figure this out um, sooner than later? And then can I 
you know, do this kind of judgment free thing that would allow them to be the best person they can be or the, the do that lift appropriately or, you know, what have you, whatever the goal is. Right. You know, the judgment free, that's a, that's a huge thing. It's, you know, it's funny when I, when I'm training, a, when I'm training a student, um, I almost never get frustrated if they're not picking up on the, on the teaching cues and it's up to me to try to figure out, you know, what teaching cues are going to work for them. Yeah. Right. When I train, um, Suzanne, my fiance, I find myself getting frustrated because, you know, we, I have that familiar familiarity. <laughs> is that the right word? Is that the word? <laughs> With her? <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and so, you know, I'll find myself, you know, tr teach, trying to teach her, uh, you know, how to correct something like in the kettlebell swing. And when she doesn't get it, I find myself getting frustrated and getting short with her. And, I, and it's, and I have to take a step back and think, Oh, wait, 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 I've got to be, you know, if she's not getting it, it's not her fault. It's my fault. <laughs> I, I forget the, the famous quote and I forgive me public people for not remembering who said this, but they say, but it, and I think it goes something like you, you haven't taught until they have learned. Mm hmm. <laughs> exactly. Let's say exactly. whatever you want, but until the person learned the thing, you're not actually a teacher. I guess is the way that I understood it. Right, right, and it's you know, and it's it's funny the way that you know, it's kind of it's your own ego that kind of creeps up on you, and it's it's funny how it you know it, it comes out on the people that you care about and love, and not on the people that are just paying you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, cool. So, all right. So you, you graduated college, you've, you've kind of started amassing this, uh, this, this passion and this curiosity and interest in, in fitness and you're looking for a way to break into it. What led you to start? So you, you started a pretty successful uh, venture in, in New York city, which, you know, I, I don't think it's any secret that New York city is a very expensive place to live and, and, and potentially do business. So, what were the big challenges for you to kind of decide, okay, I want to make this my career and I want to make, th make this my business. How do you start something like, you know, you're in the mo one of the most expensive cities in the world and you, if you don't have a lot of backing, and a lot of funding, where do you start? Where do you start? Well, <laughs> I, I, my business partner and I were pretty lucky because we had, you know, we started at a big gym, so we had a fair amount of experience with different types of clients and different um, fill in, uh, fitness and skill levels. So we were pretty self-assured about our own skills. Uh -huh. I'm just going <laughs> how it is. You know, in our minds when we decided we wanted to take this jump, there kind of was very little doubt that we were good trainers on some level or that we wanted to do a kind of training program, a cohesive training program. There was no real doubt about that part of it. And I think that it's important to say that because everything else we were in doubt about, okay? Neither one of us had a background in finance or really had worked in any kind of large scale business style capacity. We both have these kind of art backgrounds. So, we based it on the idea that, hey, we really like this kind of training and we want to share it. And the place that we are now is not really a great environment for us to do that stuff. So let's go on the path to see if this is even possible. So we started just, it sounds silly, but walking up and down the streets of the neighborhood that we wanted to work in. 
Um, we both live relatively close to each other, so we thought we would find a location that was somewhere within a 10-block radius of our homes. And we called some phone numbers and, um, you know, got in touch with some realtors in the area. And the first uh, kind of wall that we hit was just the sheer expense of rent for, for a space in New York that you mentioned. I... I I was really kind of shocked. But again, you know, not having done this before, I guess it wasn't so shocking. This was our first step at doing this. So it was expensive. And then we thought, okay, so how do we do that? Well, let's put that on the back burner. So we did that. And somehow we got connected with the Small Business Association of New York City. And this, I'm sure, I'm sure there must be an organization like this in every major city, every small city, every rural you know, village you could possibly think of. Um, and you just have to go out and find it. It's a, basically a collection of retired accountants and business people that out of their generosity are now going to an office somewhere and providing their insight to goofballs like myself (laughs) for free, for free. Man, talk about leveraging your assets. (laughs) Yeah, I I really don't know how we heard about it, but I'm telling everyone now that these organizations do exist. Or maybe you could parlay that into the, you know, you can, to finding something else that's like that. Because guaranteed there are people out there that want to share their expertise that have this kind of background. Or you can call the New York office. I'm sure that whatever expertise they have for Manhattan, New York City would be relevant to any other city or state. And in retrospect, they, they weren't really um, giving us anything that was too mind-blowing. The guy basically said, okay, can you write a business plan? Here are the 10 things that are included in writing a business plan because it sounds like you guys need a loan. Um, See, come back to my office in two weeks with these 10 things answered, basically, Mm -hmm. and then we'll go from there. And then we came back with our business plan, he made a couple of changes, had us take it away, come back again, then gave us a list of three or four places where we could apply for a small business loan. Now, that's basically it. I mean, we had a general sense of what money we could be making, um, but it was very primitive. I mean, you have this very simple calculus. You go, okay, the rent is X amount of dollars. Um, I assume that power is going to cost X amount of dollars a month. Um, laundry, maybe the internet. Of course, we factored all those things in except for our salary, right? Right. So it's kind of... Right. Right. You want to get paid? <laughs> <laughs> so we thought we were being pretty clever. We're like, okay, we got this. We got like internet and, you know, on here. And then he said, well, you know, you also need to make money to live on. So... <laughs> 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 no, but, you know, and then there's obviously, I mean, there's people that can help out with that. So we didn't have to go back to accounting class and learn how to, you know, think about these things quarterly or annually or anything like that. And really the biggest shift in all this was making the decision to do it. Because no matter how much someone tries to um, create a calculus for your success, your success today or in a month or six months from now, and there could be a hundred different scenarios, whether you're able to 
borrow $10,000 or $100,000. The sky's the limit in terms of um, things that could happen, but you just don't know. So we were lucky enough to get a small business loan and we both um, just did that. We said, okay, well, it costs a couple thousand dollars to buy the gym flooring. Mm-hmm. We need a couple of pieces of equipment that should be a few grand. And so we need this loan to start up and then that was it. That's awesome. I mean, you know, one thing that sticks out in that in that story is when you talk to the consultants, the retired accountants and whatnot, is that they just kept it really simple. You mm-hmm. know, it was, they, they you know you had a simple plan that you could follow, and I think there's a real tendency for people, no matter what they're doing, whether it's starting a business or starting a fitness plan, of trying to overcomplicate it. You know, there's oh. a, a million different ways to get to the finish line, but usually the, the simplest and most direct way is the best way. It's like, you know, if you want to get big, you know, you do deadlift squats and bench, bench press. And that's pretty much all you need to do. Right? Yeah, eat food. <laughs> yeah, and, and eat, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. So, you know, I think it's, that's a really good thing to keep in mind is, you know, just the basics always work. Right. Absolutely. And then, you know, it also was comforting to look at the, I mean, of course, it's it's great to be kind of otherworldly about it and say, like, open your heart and take a chance and all the best things you can't predict or what, you know, that, 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 of course, is one aspect of this process. Sure. But yeah, you should, you should have a sense of how much money your business is making. I, I can't speak for the folks that are starting a brand new facility that had no clients. That's, that's something that I don't have expertise on because we had some starting clients. Therefore we had some sense of what our starting revenue could possibly be, you know, and that's really helpful. So, okay, maybe you're starting with zero, then how are you going to, you know, how do you want to think about the first few months of your business or how do you need to build that up maybe with your business loan or something like that? It doesn't mean that it's impossible, but you know, numbers, they have to be as real as they can be and you have to be able to confront those. So in terms of our business loan, at the end of the day, if we folded within a month and had this loan on our hands, we could both be working pretty menial jobs and pay it off. Right. It would be gut wrenching, mm-hmm. but you know, a couple hundred dollars a month for each of us to pay off over whatever period of time because we took a chance and it exploded in our faces still really didn't seem all that risky to my mind. Right. I was like, okay, this but, is within reason. But you guys so, did, you know, you did have a worse, you know, you did look at a worst case scenario, like, okay, worst case, you know, one of us has to go flip burgers just to keep the lights on. Oh yeah. You know? Right. And that's, you know, that's something I think, you know, everybody, when they start something, they don't, nobody starts anything expecting to fail. Um, sure. And I don't think it's a, you know, I, I don't, but I don't think it's a bad thing to think about the worst case. I mean, Richard Branson famously does that whenever he starts a new, a new venture, he sure. looks at the worst case scenario when he, you know, when he started Virgin Airlines, he negotiated a deal with Boeing that he could give back the jets in in a year if things didn't work out. Okay, yeah, <laughs> um, I think that's a that's sound advice because then at least you see what you're looking at. Because I think the feeling might be if this doesn't work out, I'm going to be living under a bridge or something like that. Yeah, but worst case, oftentimes is not that dire, or or you know, or you can put things in place now to make sure it doesn't get that dire. Exactly. But 
you know, that, that really was what we had to look at and say, okay, well, is this really that bad? <laughs> like you said, I mean, <laughs> it's not terrible. So let's yeah. go for it. Given yep. the small chance that we will both be living in the gym. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you have a roof over your head. You know, yeah. it could be worse. <laughs> New York City gets cold in the winter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I think keeping it simple, and oftentimes the easiest thing is to just do the thing. So, again, I think the biggest challenge for us to to just get mentally behind trying. Because yeah. it was pretty easy in terms of the here's the steps and you know everybody knows the steps. Right. It's getting um, open to the idea to give it a try or start heading that direction. Mm -hmm. Right, but you know I, I really like the you know that story because you guys had a plan, you worked the plan, you looked at the downside, and you moved forward with it. And you know I'm sure there were some. Some things that came up along the way, but, you know, you adjusted and course corrected as they came up. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I would say that was the most difficult part. And even in the beginning stages, you know, you kind of get led to what additional things you need to do um, as it goes, as it, you know, unfolds. But it's just that initial deciding to do it, I think, is going to be the tough one for most folks. Or, or I can liken it to I don't have any children so i'm wholly not the right person to say anything about this but i've seen plenty of our clients get prepared for a child go through the pregnancy there's kind of that wheel of emotions not knowing and all this stuff and then the baby comes and they kind of just know you know mm -hmm. things change every day but they kind of just know what the next thing is to do so that same frantic person a few months ago or even several months before that, that was like, I can't imagine what it would take. Right. Kind of just, it, it's just that point when the, th when the baby's born, <laughs> then everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's never any perfect time. If you're waiting for the perfect time to do anything, you're going to be waiting a long time. So you just have to kind of move forward and just do it. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and this is uh, our, our, our mutual friend, Big Ed, will love this. Uh, it's, from Mike, it's from Mike Tyson. And it said, you know, he says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. So, Ed, I hope you listen to this. <laughs> love you, brother. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. Oh. So... You know, I want to shift gears a little bit. Now, um, when it comes to training, you are a, an RKC team leader. Um, so you are, you know, have a great kettlebell background. And kettlebells are kind of one of my favorite modalities to train with. I use them with a lot of my students. Um, and personally, I just, think they're, I just think they're a ton of fun. But, you know, for new people that are, you know, that aren't familiar with kettlebells, maybe they've seen some YouTube videos and stuff. You see these guys and gals swinging around these basically a cannonball with a handle on it <laughs> the size of their head or you know yeah and so there's potential for some real damage there but but it's uh you know when you're when you first start working with people and, and you're introducing them to kettlebells um you know whether they have a preconceived notion or not how do you kind of get them past that initial intimidation because it is kind of scary looking look you know when you first see it Oh, yeah, they're menacing and they're black or, you know, whatever. It's their, they, they have this intimidation factor. So I have certainly encountered that a lot. 
I feel um, it's a combination, right? I mean, it's a little bit of exposure here and there, so I'm not always, depending on the person, I'm, I may not always introduce the main staples of the kettlebell repertoire, but even just building familiarity, like a goblet squat or something that really doesn't require a kettlebell, you can do that with a dumbbell, you can do that, you know, with a ball, a bosu, any sort of like kind of a bouncy ball type of thing, mm-hmm. um, I'll opt for the kettlebell. Because then once you've played around with it a little bit, then you start becoming more open to the idea that you could do other things with it. You know, there isn't this big divide. I think uh, it's a mistake to um, make it out to be something that it's not. I mean, it, it really is kind of just another thing that you can put in your hands. It just happens to have a handle on it. It doesn't necessarily imbue it with some sort of mystical powers that you have to earn somehow. Mm-hmm. It's just like another thing to put in your hands. You know, having said that, there are a couple of moves that you should probably learn how to do them with a professional person or someone that you trust, okay? I, I'm not going to sit here and say that you have to hire some expensive trainer to learn how to do these moves well, but learn learn it from someone that you trust. And maybe YouTube is a little too light and maybe training with, you know, the most decorated kettlebell person you can think of is too strong. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in there, I think as you learn the process, your body will kind of indicate this maybe isn't feeling very good. But, you know, I, so, so first steps is just getting you to be around the thing. And then really just building that conversation out. You know, why is it intimidating? Or, or here's the value of this movement you know i think the only big difference between kettlebells and most other things is that you can do the kettlebell swing which is basically an explosive deadlift i mean at its kind of nuts and bolts of the movement that's the shape that your body's creating but it is a ballistic and explosive move so your body is moving quickly and i think that's where people start to get concerned it doesn't mean that you are necessarily exposing yourself to more potential injury, but it's just a different move, one that you haven't done before, you know? So seeing it around or even talking about it or trying kind of the basic mechanics, the deadlift part, the plank, and building up that um, comfort, I think, I I will take as much time as it takes to get the person, the client, um, to feel comfortable with trying it. Because once you're open to trying it, then the move really isn't that different than anything else you've really, that you've done. Again, it's kind of like getting over that mental hump that it's dangerous or not dangerous or that you need to be an expert or not an expert or what have you in order to do it well or safely. Right. And you, you mentioned YouTube earlier and I, I completely agree with you that if you just turn someone loose on a YouTube video and have them try to replicate the kettlebell swing, I mean, the kettlebell swing on the surface, it looks really simple and it looks, Oh, you're just swinging a kettlebell, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of subtleties to it. And there's a lot of things that people get wrong. If they're just, you know, unless they're getting the the coaching cues and having somebody there physically in the room with them, correcting as they go, it's really easy to develop bad habits, you know, especially if you're a beginner, you know, so it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's crucial to, you know, certainly look at the YouTube video and get and familiarize yourself with the movement. But before you get too far down the road and develop any really bad habits, you should spend. I mean, I think it's worth seeking out uh, 
a kettlebell instructor or, you know, a trainer that has some kettlebell experience just to make sure that you're not missing the, you know, the basics. Right. No, agreed. Agreed. And that's not just for the cat. I mean, that's anything. I mean, if you watch somebody do a deadlift on YouTube, it's like, oh, you're just lifting a weight off the ground. How hard is that? But, you know, you and I both know it's a, it's a really complex, simple movement. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the other, the other thing that I, um, try to express or, you know, again, it's another thing that you can put in your hands, but because of the nature of the way that the weight is displaced often, often, or what I often hear is people will say, well, this feels weird. I'm doing a press or something and it feels like I'm being pulled or it feels like it just feels weird instead of a dumbbell or something like that in comparison to that. And that's because of the way that the weight's distributed mm-hmm. when you're holding it in your hand or you're holding it on your arm the alignment of your, your, your structure, your frame, for lack of a better term, um, has to be in alignment so that the weight that's kind of beside it isn't on your frame. So if you, does that make sense? If everything's lined up, then the weight should be kind of outside of your structure. If you find that the weight is on your structure, then some alignment on the body is not exactly right which you will know right away because it will Mm -hmm. feel bad or it'll feel very heavy or you can't hold it for very long. So in a way it's giving you feedback as to where your posture is or where your alignment is. But the sensation of having external feedback in a way is very strange compared to a lot of other kind of weightlifting tools that we often use where the weight is on you Mm -hmm. and that's the feedback that you're getting. It's directly on you. With the kettlebell, it's just outside of you. So when it's on you, it feels really, really heavy. And then when it's next to you or when it's in alignment with you, it's kind of the only way that it can be managed. Right. And that's, uh, I mean, there's, you know, we could, we could actually do a whole podcast on kettlebells and maybe some, I mean, hopefully I'd love to have you back and we could talk just about kettlebells, mm-hmm. but you know, like anything else, it's like, if you get caught up in the dogma of it, then I think you lose, you start shutting down possibilities and looking at other things. It's like anything, whether it's kettlebells, CrossFit, you know, vegetarianism, if you get right. too caught up in the dogma of it, you kind of shut down and you really limit yourself you know, and as yeah. you said, the kettlebell is just another tool. It's just something to put in your hands. Right. Um, you know, it's, and station might be, feel different, but it doesn't mean that it's bad or that you need to learn it or not learn it. But it could be the reason why you experience it in a different way than you experience a dumbbell weight or a barbell weight, for example, which are more similar. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I mean, the, you know, the kettlebell swing and the Turkish getup have had profound impact on just my overall health. I, you know, I've, I've had lifelong back issues and those two movements, you know, combined with, you know, some other good programming and structural work, but those, those two more than anything else, I think have made me a more durable human being, not just an athlete, but just a more, you know, I, I've been pain, you know, pain-free in my back for, you know, over two years now. So, you know, I'm kind of an evangelist for him in some respects, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but there, you know, I could have done, you know, I could have, eas- I could have fixed my back doing other things. These were just, these were just the things that, you know, made the most sense and worked well for me. So, you know, I always talk about, you know, about kettlebells and try to try to share my enthusiasm for them. <laughs> but again, as you said, just really being open to trying them. I mean, it may, it may or may not work for a given person, but 
they're generally good techniques to at least explore. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you know, with regard to training, you and I both come kind of come from a similar background in terms of we train people more for performance standard rather than an aesthetic with the idea that the aesthetic will come sure. with, with the performance. And, I, and that's, I don't know if it's the right, I mean, for me, it's the right way. I, you know, I'll argue that all day long, but it's, um, again, it's another way to get to the same objective, but I think there's a lot more pitfalls if you're just training to get a look mm-hmm. versus performance. And I, I couldn't agree more, but of course we're kind of on similar sides. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> into the choir. I mean, I guess, and I, I don't want to make this kind of like a gender deal, but I can only speak um, from my experience as a woman. And the reason why I'm saying this or kind of framing my response is that the idea of training for aesthetics or anything aesthetic related to my mind um, is very ambiguous what I think is beautiful or, you know, it, it's, it's variable and it changes from day to day. You know, how do I know that's true? Because I, I've looked the same for a long time, but sometimes I look in the mirror and I think I look terrible and some days I think I look great. Uh, my body weight's not changed. My performance hasn't changed, you know, things like that. So within myself, it, it, it's just chaos. <laughs> I'm just thinking about the pure aesthetic elements or, you know, over time, the, the thing that I thought was not so attractive is now very attractive to me. I don't know. You know, we're always evolving and changing. And, um, you know, and that's kind of the beauty of feeling or seeing or some of these senses. Okay. And I think that we should continue to enjoy those things, taste, touch, scent, you know, all those things. That that should be variable and it should be something that we enjoy, not something that we're quantifying or trying to fit into an objective pattern because I think it's a disservice to us. Um, I think it will dramatically reduce the overall pleasure and enjoyment that one can have in their life. So I'm going beyond training. So if I'm training for a performance goal, again, going back to this idea that it's judgment free, it is judgment free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no, there's no judgment on it. If it if it's you know pick up two hundred pounds, no one's writing these like treatises on why lifting two hundred pounds is great or not great because it depends on who the lifter is. It depends on what the purpose is. You know, it there's an objective reality to lifting or or, or to setting a goal that's based on performance because it's designed for you, you know, we often talk about percentages of one's body weight because we want to see if the engine can move the machine, right? Right. But everybody's machine is different. So we all have different skills. We all have different purposes. And then our goals are reflected in that percentage um, analysis rather than I can, you know, I can lift more than you straight across the board. Therefore, I'm a better person. It's not even about that. It's it's kind of removed from that uh, value system. So I think just from a purely emotional and philosophical standpoint, we should be training from, from the, for the purpose of performance because it can actually be scaled and understood um, like uh, it, it's understood through the lens of you <laughs> and your actual with the body that you're working with and the skills that you're working with or skills that you can acquire. 
you know, if I'm just saying I want to be more beautiful or skinnier, I mean, the sky's the limit really on that, or who knows what that is, or it's, it's too, it's a game. You're entering into a game that you, that really isn't designed to be one. That's exactly right. Cause you, now you're, you're training for some, something that's beyond you and you're training to meet somebody else's standard of, you know, beauty, strength or whatever. So I think that, you know, what, you know, when I start with a, with a new student, it's, Oh, you know, a lot of the first weeks are just kind of changing their mindset and kind of helping them kind of figure out what they want out of, out of their fitness, fitness plan, whether it's, and, and you know, trying to get them to think from the performance standpoint mm-hmm. of, of training rather than the aesthetic and that the aesthetics will come. I mean, if you train like an athlete, eventually you're going to look like an athlete. Right. Um, but having a realistic expectation of what that means, I mean, you know, using myself for as an example, I'm never going to look like our, our friends, Ed or Antonio, no matter what, I, <laughs> you know, and if my whole training objective is to look like, like those guys, I'm never going to be happy. And, and eventually I'm just going to, I'm going to just give up because I'm, right. know, I've, I'm, I've set this objective and this standard that is just not reachable for me. And it's a disservice to your own um, skills. These guys are not able to do what you can do on the bike, or you know what I mean. Even if they trained in this with the same intention that you had, so also I think that also puts the um, value back in the individual and allowing yourself some successes. I think it's very easy to externalize everything, right? But, you know, you can be good at some things. Maybe it has to be a discovery of what you're great at or things that you'd like to improve rather than how can I be like this other person? <laughs> right. Well, I think that's a big part of our role as as trainers is to kind of help people down that road and discover what they're, you know, what they're good at or, you know, what they, what they really want to strive for. I mean, they may come into the gym, you know, with, you know, with a picture of somebody like Ed and say, Hey, I want to look like this guy, mm-hmm. but is that really what's driving them? Or is, it, or is it really more, you know, I want to feel, you know, I just want to feel good when I wake up in the morning. I want to be able to chase my kids around on the weekend, um, right. you know, really get down to, you know, what's really driving them. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you know, we're such a visual society and culture, and I think that, you know, we do ourselves a huge disservice just to, you know, to chase after that when there's so much more to it. I think once you get into the training and enjoy the process of it, then you can start to appreciate like, okay, well, you know, I don't need to look like a bodybuilder to feel good and to be able to do the things that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, or maybe, hey, I actually have the, this great talent for becoming a bodybuilder style person. I had no idea. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. The reverse is also true. So yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I'm, not, yeah, I'm not disparaging bodybuilders at all. <laughs> <laughs> if I could look like that, I would, but I don't. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's it's absolutely true, and and really that that self discovery process. So I I think we're we're in agreement that on some level there has to be a more systemic approach, a paradigm shift has, has to occur um, emotionally or philosophically before the training can really do what it needs to do. Because if you don't change those things, then maybe even the positive results you're getting won't be perceived as positive. 
Mm-hmm. And that I also encounter as well, you know, having worked um, with lots of people at this point, but early on when I really did not make it a point to uh, work with the conceptual stuff or the emotional stuff, people would be losing weight and they would be getting in better shape or things like that. But their perception of it was that they weren't because the perception was, you know, in one case, I'm lifting over 200 pounds. Therefore I must be headed to weighing 200 pounds or something like that. Yeah. You know, we, and it's not, it's not this person's fault. It's, it's beyond thinking. Obviously this is an emotional reaction to something that's, uh, you know, that's happening that isn't necessarily logic based. This is an intelligent person. You know, I'm not saying anything like that, but, but understanding why those, um, misunderstandings occur because emotions are involved and they stem from the beliefs that you have about this process. If you believe lifting heavier will make you bigger, it doesn't matter what's in front of you. You will find ways to get these results or these observations to fit in accordance with your belief system. Mm -hmm. So you have to address the beliefs first or hopefully remove some of the, the, most pervasive ones or the most negative ones to not even change them into better beliefs, but at least remove the ones that really would prevent you from seeing what's actually happening, I think is the goal. I mean, people will do whatever they want to do. Nobody has any problems doing what they want to do. They have a difficult time doing things that they don't want to do. So my job or my effort is to really attempt to make the self-discovery process, a thing that you want to do and lifting, at least in my profession is a part of that self-discovery process. So I'm trying to invite people to change their minds about that or, you know, so that it's something that they like to do. Maybe they don't like to lift heavy all the time or whatever, but they like the idea of, of um, discovering something new about themselves. They like the idea of trying something new. They like the idea of liking something at the gym, you know, sure. That's the goal. Yeah, and it's you know I think it's just opening people to those possibilities and you know exposing them to different types of training and different types of uh, of programming. You know I think we, you know, using the 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 uh, Jim Jones seminar that we were both at back in August as an example. You know, we had the deadlift day where, you know, that's, that wasn't my day to shine, <laughs> but, you know, we had, <laughs> and we had, and we had the, the run up Mount wire, you know, and but, so we had a lot of, you know, a lot of people, you know, these were all fitness professionals uh, with mm-hmm. a lot of years of experience, but everybody, you know, was exposed to kind of the, the complete spectrum of fitness that week. And mm-hmm. it was in a, and it was in an environment where there were no judgments and nobody, and everybody was super supportive. I mean, you know, when I was, you know, I did my, my pathetic deadlift and I got, you know, just as much support and encouragement from the guys that are lifting 600 pounds as, you know, as, as I gave them when we were running up Mount wire and, you know, I, you know, I'm waiting, you know, I'm waiting at the top for 10 minutes for some of those guys to get up there. It was Everybody has their own limit, and and as long as you're giving the, your best effort, that's what it's all about. I mean, yeah, and everybody being open to that possibility that you're not the best at everything. Right. I mean, I keep coming back to this, but I think that's why the environment was so encouraging and so cohesive, because even as professional people in the industry, I think, you know, 
it's easy to want to have this fantasy that you could be great at everything or that there's some sort of benefit to quote unquote being great at everything. Mm -hmm. But that's really not the case. I mean, unless you're Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Him aside, but you know what I'm saying for the rest of us, mere mortals. (laughs) Yeah. But that's why, you know, people had, you know, they had great days and worse days and things that were challenging and things that they had never tried before. Um, but the fact that everybody understood that about themselves and each other, of course you can be encouraging of that. If you've never tried anything that was difficult for you, then you probably wouldn't have reacted that way in that room. Or, you know, if you hadn't really pushed yourself or laid it on the line before or exposed yourself, then you probably wouldn't be so open to being encouraging in that environment. So I think um, that's why everybody was so great because you could tell people had put themselves in situations that were uncomfortable and knew that there were things that they could improve upon and invited those things to come to the surface so they could work on those things. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, I mean, that's, and that's what kind of separates a professional or, you know, somebody that's serious from, you know, the dilettante is that they're willing to kind of venture outside of their, their wheelhouse and, you know, and do the things that they're not good at and that, and that don't make them necessarily feel good. But, you know, you kind of have to, if you're going to be, you know, a a complete well-rounded human being, you know, I think it's super important to, to do the things that you don't, you know, force yourself to do things that you don't necessarily want to do from time to time. Sure. You know, just to kind of see where your limits are and, you know, and maybe things that were a limit, you know, now aren't, aren't a limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it brings to mind again, another quote that I don't know who the um, person is who said this, but it very much resonates with me. The idea that you, in order to get the outcome or like a, a different outcome than what you have been getting, you have to do something that you've never done before. Right. <laughs> and I think this not only relates to the, the fitness stuff, but kind of going back to the business origin, you know, and I'd never owned a business before. So really all of my intuition about what I should do to get a business going probably didn't make a lot of sense. And it's not because I'm an idiot. It's not because I could have done more research, but I really just had never done that before. What expertise did I really have? So I had to think like someone else that I had not been before mm-hmm. or seek the help of people that are thinking in that way or what have you. So um, I encourage anybody who's starting to embark on that to really kind of keep that in their mind. If you if you know what you should be doing in some way, then that reality should already be happening. So if it's not, then you probably have some growing to do or some other external things to access to get you there. And because it's unknown, it is going to be uncomfortable, exhilarating. You're going to feel the whole wheel of emotions because it's something that you've literally never done before. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of that just stems from being, being humble and, you know, knowing that you have limits and that you have things that you're not great at and, you know, just being humble enough to ask for help and to seek out a mentor, seek out, you know, somebody that has, you know, gotten to where you want to be. Oh yeah. It's going to, that's a much easier thing to do than reinventing the wheel. 
Right. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So if I'm talking to someone who's lazy right now, I'm like, look, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's other people that have things and you piece up all, you know, piece together all this uh, advice. You'll, you'll probably end up somewhere pretty great. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You'll be all right. (laughs) Well, great. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, Annie's. Um, But one thing I wanted to touch on, so Sure. We had talked before we started recording. A lot of our listeners here are entrepreneurs and business people that are, you know, just looking to to level up and just upgrade their life in, in all aspects. You know, mind, body, and business is kind of the the mantra of of Wukar. So, but I, I think a lot of our listeners maybe don't have you know a good idea of where to start. You know, when it comes to you know a fitness program. So, what's the what's the one thing that you know, for somebody that's kind of sitting the fence or looking for a way to get into, you know, a fitness program or regimen, what's the one thing they can start doing today that's going to that's gonna get them down that path? Well, let's see here. One actionable tip that I can offer at this moment is to make things easy for yourself. <laughs> Seriously, I mean... If you did, you know, what's the example, one push-up a day mm-hmm. or one push-up, you know, it, there, there has to be some element of consistency, um, but within that realm. So consistency, that's non-negotiable, right. but what you're doing is negotiable. So let's say we do one push-up a day. It can be done at any time of day. Um, it could be done, uh, you know, you could be at work. It doesn't matter. Any time of day, any location, and you just get into the habit of doing that. It doesn't cause you to break a sweat. It doesn't take up any real time. And then the I, I really strongly believe that the kind of confidence that's built from knowing that you can do something every day will encourage you to want to do more of that thing or, or something else, maybe squats or something. Mm-hmm. But once it becomes part of your daily ritual, you'll kind of gradually build a program and, and be led to discover more advanced programs. But if you don't do that first step or for the folks that get really overzealous and they're like, okay, I'm going to do this program, you know, Lance Armstrong a week before Tour de France, (laughs) that's what we're doing. Okay. Of course, that's not sustainable. That's not even sustainable for him. Right. Right. Forget because there's that misunderstanding that I'm going to have the most efficient, you know, program coupled with the most short amount of time. And, you know, we live in a very kind of, I don't even know what to say, but like this instant gratification style, you know, life, everything's in your face and it's at your fingertips. And these things occur over a matter of moments. You snap your fingers and it's there. Fitness does not work like that. And the beauty of it is that fitness does not work like that. It's probably the only thing. And this is my own rant of the day. It's the only thing that you can put time into that yields exactly what you're putting into it. Look, I mean, we talked about having impeccable technique with the kettlebell and I love that and I'm all for that. But let's say you picked a heavy kettlebell up every day with terrible form, provided that you didn't hurt yourself in this process. You pick up something heavy every day, you're probably going to get stronger. Actually, I guarantee that you will. Right. Versus I could have had an accounting background. I could have had the best mentors. I could have had a thousand clients and my business could have still failed because most other things in life aren't that kind of 
kind of clean in terms of what you put in to what you take out. So when you're developing that program, again, that one push of a day, it may not seem like a lot, but after a month, you've done 31 push-ups, 31, that's a 31, you know, whatever, 3,100% increase from zero or whatever the math is on that. Yeah. <laughs> one billion percent. But you know what I mean? It, it, it's just, that's just how it is. And then eventually you'll do two a day or what have you. Um, and then you don't lose anything by having done it this way. Each, each rep that you've done, it, it's building on a, on a found, it's building a foundation that really can't be taken away from you. So what you can do today is do that one rep a day. Just do something that's very easy. Just get into the habit of it. That's perfect. That's, that leads you. that's you know, that's, I, I tell a lot of my students are like that. Uh, nobody ever got lucky and got fit. There's, there's instances of people force gumping their way to fortunes and things like that. Sure. But you can't, like you said, you can't do that with fitness. You don't just wake up one day and like, Oh shit, I got fit. <laughs> you can't hack that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, Oh God, don't even get me started on the whole body <laughs> hacking thing. Yeah. You can't hack fitness. <laughs> yeah. I make that. There's a burpee penalty in my gym if you say body hack or biohack. <laughs> I have to save advice for the for an actionable nutrition thing that can be done today. Eat an apple and a vegetable every day. It doesn't matter when. Just and it doesn't matter what vegetable. Eat right. an apple and a vegetable every day. Yeah, I mean that's perfect advice. And like you you know, like you said you, so many people get overzealous and they're like, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do a thousand push-ups. I'm going <laughs> to drink nothing but water. And, you know, they just have all this stuff that they're going to do. And it's just, it's not sustainable and you can't, you're just setting yourself up to fail. So I love that of just do one thing and do yeah. one thing until you do two things. Right. And exactly. <laughs> and I think the, 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 kind of outputs of a failure. I mean, failure is a strong term, but by putting your heart on the line with this thing, you know, this crazy program and not being able to complete it, I think the kind of negative psychological effects that occur from that are much more difficult to overcome than, you know, quote unquote, not starting with a hundred pushups a day. Mm -hmm. Like if in a year from now <laughs> you could do a hundred pushups a day and you're like, man, I really, you know, that first year I could have added a few more push-ups. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> but people that go on this overzealous program, oftentimes those people never work out again in their whole lives. Yeah. It was so, they made it up in their minds because the, the it gets so discouraging. That yeah. is much more, I think, damaging long-term than, you know, maybe feeling like you could have gone harder in the past or something like that, or the regret that one could have. <laughs> by having not dialed it to 11 from day one, knowing what they know now. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great They'll be doing the thing <laughs> today yeah, rather true. than like, I'm never trying this again, which isn't an unreasonable response to an epic blow up. No, it's not. And that's really hugely important. You got to set yourself up to succeed. I mean, we, you know, nobody likes to feel like they failed or wasted their time. So, you know, reward, you know, recognize when you're doing things right and reward yourself for it. Yeah. Or, I mean, to be honest, you, you don't even need to get rewarded. Just do it. Right. I mean, this is also kind of an ongoing joke at, at 
with my clients. I'm like, look, working out should just be like brushing your teeth. You just do it every day. And then once a year, someone tells you that you get to keep your teeth. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. Right. <laughs> There's no fanfare in your bathroom at 6 a.m. You're brushing your teeth. There's no, you know, no one's like cutting the ribbon in front of the bathroom door or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You just do it. Some days you feel like you want to because you had, you know, pulled pork sandwich or something. Some days you're just like, yeah, whatever. You're doing it in the dark. You're doing it in the winter. <laughs> you're doing it, you know, whatever. And that's it. In terms of the general, I, I think if you have that outlook, then you're, you can start to be open to enjoying it or finding things that you enjoy about it and making it more of a, a craft rather than this like imperative that you despise doing. Wow, that's starting from like a neutral patina, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> then you have a chance. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. It's that's that's exactly. I mean, you come from a music background. You don't give somebody, you know, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony and say, "Hey, play this." You know, you start with the basics. You play chopsticks and you move up to whatever. <laughs> so, but consistency is key. So that's the only non-negotiable. Everything else, it's pretty flexible. Yeah. Perfect. Well. Annie, thank you so much for your time. Where can people learn more about you? I know you're kind of uh, in transition right now, um, but do you have any anywhere online where people can reach you and uh, find out more about what you're doing? Well, at the moment, the best place to find more information about me is probably on the Dragon Door website, and that's um, Dragon, D-R-A-G-O-N, door, D-O-O-R, dot com, and I believe it's forward slash... Annie, A-N-N-I-E, dash, Vo, V-O. Mm-hmm. And if not, you can certainly search for my name in New York City on the Dragon Door site. Okay. And then I'm on Facebook. Um, and then also Instagram. My handle is at VoFactor. Um, and I should be launching my site relatively soon. So ho- hopefully everybody kind of hangs out there. Great. <laughs> and yeah. that in some very um, kind of near future. Okay. Well, I will put all, I'll put those links in the show notes as well so that people can find those. And when your new site comes up, uh, for sure, we'll get the word out on that. But, uh, you know, thank you for taking the time today. Uh, really appreciate uh, it. Gave us some great insights and, uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back sometime and we can really go deep on kettlebells. <laughs> I would love that. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, um, we will talk soon and, uh, you have a great day.